Our scripture reading comes from 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 to 13. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is God's word. Today we're going to continue our study of 1 John. Um, We're in chapter 5. John is the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. And uh, if we go to the Gospel of John, he tells us why he wrote the Gospel of John in the 20th chapter, verse 31. He said that he wrote his Gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In this epistle, he gives us his reason for writing the epistle, and it was for a slightly different reason. He says that he wrote it so that we can have assurance of our salvation, so that we would know that we are uh, children of God. And so kind of an interesting way that John uh, reasons why he wrote both of, his, uh, of these books. <clears throat> Uh, in this final chapter of this first epistle, we have a series of verses that we just heard, which really uh, serve to kind of close his first epistle. There's a few verses after that, which Sam will preach on next week. But essentially, verse 13 is kind of like the, uh, the climax of this entire book. I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, He reminds us that our faith is in a real God, that uh, he came to earth as a real man, uh, as the Son of God, and that he brought with him eternal life to to us, and that if we believe in him as our Savior, we are the possessors of this priceless gift. Now, this passage starts out with verse 6, which is a little bit of a challenge, I think, for, for most of us to understand. I know it was for me when I first read it. I thought, what is he talking about? Jesus who came by water, but not water only, but by water and blood. So, of course, in preparing for this, I, I did uh, uh, quite a bit of reading. And um, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a passage that has been interpreted, let's just say, a little bit differently by different people. There are various interpretations or uh, ways to look at it. And so I've kind of chosen one. Um, I didn't so much flip a coin as, as I, I really tried to look at it consistently. Uh, what is God trying to tell us with this? And, and um, it, it also is kind of the, kind of the prevailing uh, way of looking at it. Uh, let me reread that verse again. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. 
not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these things agree. Now John is writing this uh, to, to uh, give us testimony concerning uh, the Son of God, concerning Jesus. Each of these, the water, the Spirit, and the blood, testify that Christ is the Son of God. It's like John's way of saying, look at all the ways in which God has testified to us or shown witness to us that Jesus is the Son of God. He is who He said He was when He was here. And He still is who He says He was because He's not dead anymore. He is alive. Now, we're used to thinking of ways that we as believers, we as Christians, testify or witness Christ to those who don't know Him. But in this case, we have... John saying, look at the ways that God has witnessed to us concerning his own son. So it's an interesting uh, uh, few verses that we're going to take a look at. If you have that uh, the little pamphlet that, that is kind of the, uh, the first John uh, study uh, little booklet uh, for this Sunday's uh, passage that we read, it describes the four different uh, prevailing views that interpreters or uh, commentators have, have uh, uh, explained the water and the blood in verse 6. And I'm just going to look those over with you really quick. Some believe that the water and the blood refer to the water and blood that came out of Jesus' side when he was on the cross and when he was speared by the soldier to, to, to see that he was, in fact, dead. You remember that. John writes about it in his own gospel. The water and the blood came pouring forth. Some believe that the water and the blood refer to uh, the baptism and the communion uh, sacraments that we, we have in the church today. That was the view that Martin Luther and John Calvin both uh, took. Uh, thirdly, some believe that the water refers to his baptism and the blood refers to his death on the cross. And finally, some believe that the water refers to Jesus' physical birth and that the blood refers to his death on the cross. Well, I believe that the original recipients of this epistle had a more clear idea of what he was talking about uh, because they had a better understanding of the different heresies that were, that were being waged against the church um, during that time. So if we look at what John is saying in light of one of the prevalent false teachers of his time, a man named Serinthus, uh, we might better understand what he means by water and the blood. Because if you look at the whole epistle of John, part of it is, is geared specifically toward um, refuting false teachers. There were, there were myriads of people that were already attacking the church, even in the very, very beginning. And so this was one of the guys, Serinthus. And Serinthus and his followers had a certain belief about Jesus. They believed that Jesus was, when he was born, merely a man. They, they said he was born of Mary and Joseph. Nothing spectacular about it. I doubt they believed in the virgin birth. They believed that up until the time of his baptism, he was just Jesus of Nazareth. He was not Jesus the Christ. However, at his baptism, they say, he became Jesus the Christ. Okay? When the Spirit of God came down as a dove, 
descended on him, that was when he became the Christ. And furthermore, they believed that he was the Christ uh, and ministered for like the next three years. But before he was crucified, the Christ left Jesus, went back to glory with the Father, and it was Jesus, the man who died on the cross. Okay? Bad teaching. Really destructive teaching. Because it really takes everything that we really believe Christ did for us on the cross and makes it completely irrelevant. So, I believe that what John is talking about, this is the kind of the opinion that I have, and I think it holds water, no pun intended, um, that the uh, water stands for his baptism. Because I do believe that that is when Christ was revealed. Jesus was revealed publicly to be the Christ. Now, Jesus was the Christ when he was born. He was born Jesus Christ. He was born the Son of God. But he lived his first 30 years in relative obscurity, didn't he? He wasn't out there proclaiming his Messiahship until after he was baptized by John. Okay? But he remained the Christ until, well, he still is. He never gave up being Jesus the Christ, did he? All the way through his suffering, his death, he was the Christ. When he rose up from the grave three days later, he was still Jesus the Christ. And he was no longer, um, you know, uh, well, he was still the one who was uh, the Lord and Savior that we worship. And, and he's still Jesus the Christ, even now as he is in heaven with his Father. Well, let's take a look back at how Jesus was revealed to be Christ at his baptism. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the account of Jesus' baptism. Curiously, John does not, although there is a, a part in John where, it, which I'll read in a little bit, where it, it certainly uh, points to it. But let's read a passage from uh, Matthew chapter 3, starting with verse 13. This is about Jesus' baptism. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Even though John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, Jesus chose to be baptized. Not because he was a sinner, but because he chose to identify with sinners. It wasn't because he needed to repent for anything, but he chose to identify with his people who did, with you and me. And because he wanted to fulfill all righteousness. It was through his public baptism by John that Jesus was recognized as the Son of God. Listen to how John the Baptist himself describes that, that moment. John describes that in John chapter 1, beginning with verse 32. He said, I saw the Spirit... Descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, 
But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who will baptize or who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Well, let's take a look at how John is making the point that Jesus was revealed by the blood. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, this is the most important and significant point that he's making to counteract these false teachers. By denying that Jesus was the Christ on the cross, these false teachers were denying perhaps the most important aspect or element of Christianity, which is the sacrificial substitutionary death of Christ, whereby he endured the wrath of God, which was intended for us. In our place, he satisfied the just requirement of God so that sin would be paid for. And thus he atoned for the sins, our sins, and the sins of many by the shedding of his own blood. And by sacrificing himself on the cross, Jesus proved that he was the Son of God by putting an end once and for all to a sacrificial system of atonement that had been taking place for thousands of years and by bringing peace and reconciliation between a sinful people and their God. John tells us that the Spirit, the water, and the blood all testify and that they're all in agreement. There's no disagreement with with the water, the Spirit, and the blood. We looked at the water. We've looked at the blood. His baptism, His death. How about the Spirit? How does the Spirit testify to us that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, according to the Bible, the Spirit of God comes to live in us the moment we first believe and when we first have and receive salvation. The Spirit of God stays with us until such a day as we depart from this life to be with the Lord. John himself, in his previous, in the previous uh, chapter of this epistle, talks about it. But Paul also talked about it in Galatians, where he says in Galatians 4, 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. To the Romans, he told them the same thing, where he said, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And John said in 1 John 4.13, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. For those of us who are Christians, we are no longer living our lives alone. Because the spirit of God has come to live with us. And this is the way in which God testifies to each one of us individually of the truth of his son. This is the way in which we came to believe at all in Jesus. In fact, without God's Spirit changing us, bringing new life to us, not a one of us would have ever come to Him. Not a one of us 
would have been convinced about his son. Now, I don't know if any of you are holding in your lap the King James Version, the authorized version of 1611. Some people like it. I grew up with it. Um, the English is a little bit old in it. Uh, not that there's anything really wrong with it, but one of the things that's different, you'll notice, you might be sitting there saying, why doesn't he read verse 7? Well, I've read verse 7. But in the King James, it actually has an additional verse. And this is what it says. It says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, that's a pretty good verse, seems like to me, because it's like this is proof of the Trinity right here. Three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, these three are one. Well, the truth is, that was... While it was in the King James Version, it's not really in any of the uh, modern versions. It's not in the ESV. The NIV only has it as a kind of a, in the notes. Um, but the reason is, is because it's not in any of the earlier Greek manuscripts that are used for making our newer translations. It, in fact, probably didn't come into any of the translations or into any of the Greek manuscripts until the 4th, or the, no, probably until the 14th century. Um, so they speculate that some scribe who was, uh, writing a copy of, of uh, the Bible, uh, so impressed with this verse that talked about this threefold witness on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood, I must have been struck by how there's also a threefold witness in heaven, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and, and wrote it down. And maybe he wrote it as part of the text, maybe he wrote it on the side and it got included later. We don't know, but anyway, as good as it is, it doesn't belong in the Bible because it, it really wasn't there originally. It was never even used uh, in all the great debates that were taking place in like the third and fourth centuries about the Trinity and about Jesus being God and the Holy Spirit being God and the Father being God and these three are one. This verse is never cited. So obviously it wasn't in the Bible back then. It was included or added later. So anyway, that's just a little aside. Uh, In verse 9, John writes, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. What John is speaking about here is kind of referencing uh, an Old Testament law which said that uh, if someone was accused of a crime, there, there had to be two or three witnesses. One person couldn't just accuse someone else. There had to be additional evidence. Two or three witnesses in agreement establish a fact. We see it also... Uh, in the New Testament, when Paul talks about bringing an accusation against an elder, he says that it needs to be corroborated by two or three witnesses. Okay? Um, witnesses help to bring about the truth of a matter. It's used all the time in our court systems today. Uh, eyewitness testimony, especially if it's corroborated by two or three other witnesses, is really damning evidence against any defendant. It's hard to argue against. So as reasonable people, we will believe the testimony of men, won't we? How much more so, John is saying, should we believe the testimony of God? He's given us significant proof concerning His Son. He's given us the Bible. And yet, there are many who refuse to believe because they claim there's insufficient evidence to support the claims of Christianity. Now, my ex- my own experience with those who, who uh, refuse to believe because 
they say that Christianity lacks proof is that they can usually never be satisfied no matter how much evidence is presented to them. Because it's really not the issue. With most people, the issue is this. Sinful sinners love to sin. And they love to serve the idols that they have in their life. And they love to live according to the dictates of their own will. And they don't want to give up their own will to, to, to follow the will of another. And um, that's what I found. Um, but the fact is, without God intervening in any of our lives, if you're a Christian, if, he, if, 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 if uh, at some point in your life, the only reason you decided that Jesus was, in fact, worth following and your own life was worth leaving behind, it was because God's Spirit came and changed you. And God is the one who convicted you and convinced you of this truth. And our prayer is that for anyone who doesn't believe is that God would do the same work in them. Amen? Now, I like the way that John uh, is speaking about the testimony that God has given us because he makes it all about the Son. He makes it all about Jesus. There's so many different ways that this whole uh, issue uh, can be approached. Uh, There's so many different ways that a good apologist can can uh, defend the faith and make a good ca- case for the claims of Christ. But should it not begin and end with the person and work of Jesus Christ? I mean, when you're at home and you get a knock on the door and you have a family of Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons who are there to present to you their version of the gospel, you know, what is your response going to be? Other than the response that might come from your flesh to slam the door, which I would not encourage any of you to do, because uh, it, uh, it speaks something about you. But you can, you can choose to go about it different ways. If you have the time and you have the desire to, to speak to them, you could say, for the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, you could spend a lot of time, if you wanted to, discussing why is it that they don't celebrate birthdays, you know, other holidays, Christmas, all these things, or why is it that they refuse to have blood transfusion, stuff like that. And you'd be kind of wasting your time, I hate to say it, because even if you were to convince them of all of those things and get them completely on your side, get them to celebrate their birthday and Christmas and, and everything else, they're still no closer to God because they still worship a false Jesus. All right, They still don't serve the right Jesus whom the Bible talks about. Their Jesus is still a creation of God's. You know, a... Uh, you know, the Archangel Michael or whoever they say that he is. And same goes for the Mormon, our Mormon friends, the ones who come and present to you a Jesus who is the spirit brother to Lucifer. They would want to, you know, to talk about other things as well. But bring it, let's bring it back to who is Jesus. Who, is, who do you say Jesus is? I like, the, I like that because that's what Jesus did when he was talking to his own disciples. He came to... Uh, his uh, disciples, and he asked them the same question. It's right here in Matthew chapter 16, starting with verse 13. Uh, He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 10 of our text today says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. I love this, because John does not give us any wiggle room at all whatsoever to deny the testimony that God has given us. By rejecting Jesus as Son of God, we make God a liar. We cannot say that we don't have or can't get or don't believe that there's enough evidence or there's enough proof. Again, it's not for lack of evidence that people don't believe. Additional evidence will not bring more people to faith. All that is needed for us is to believe has been given to us in the Bible. That's where the best evidence for God can be found, for it's his special revelation that he's given to us. And it's through his word that the Holy Spirit of God changes hearts that are in rebellion to him, to hearts that love him, and want to follow him. I'm reminded of the parable that Jesus taught about the rich man and Lazarus. I think it makes the point rather well. It's in Luke chapter 16. I'm going to read that to you as well. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. He was a man who had everything. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. It's a picture of, of going to be in heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus likewise bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between you and us there's a great chasm that's been fixed and in order for those in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses, they have the prophets. In other words, they have the Bible. Because that's what the Bible is about Moses and the prophets. At that time, it was just the Old Testament. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Wow. How many times do we think that if only our unbelieving friends or relatives could see some great thing, some great miracle, you know, that God would heal somebody or somebody would rise from the dead, they would have to believe. Well, I hate to break it to you. 
It's, that's not what's keeping them from believing. All right? That's not what it is. I mean, think about it. Jesus Christ himself died and rose from the grave. And people still don't believe. Even people who believe, I mean, believe that Jesus Christ lived and died, and even people that might believe that he rose from the dead, and they still won't devote their lives to him or trust him. In in verse 11, John says, And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has a Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So John here defines to us what that testimony of God is. Namely, it's the gospel message that we, that we preach. Um, that God gives eternal life through his Son. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. You know, probably the most offensive aspect of Christianity to those who are the most hostile to it is the exclusive claim that Christianity makes about itself, but that which is what Jesus made about himself. Uh, Listen to what he says in John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's exclusive. But that is who Jesus is. He could say that because he is God. Eternal life is something that we don't consider often enough. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have eternal life. Not will have, but you have. It's the life that you receive the moment you first believed. It's a priceless gift. Proportions of which we can only imagine in this life. It's quantitative in that it's long-lasting, eternal, means forever. There's no end. This life is but a shadow, just a blink. It's like a drop in the ocean compared to how long it will continue. But it's not just in length. It's about quality. This life will be good. It's already good. If you are a follower of Jesus, it's good. Not all the circumstances in your life may be the best. You might still be suffering in some way. And as Christians, we're also called to suffer. But if you're a Christian, if you know Jesus, you can suffer with joy. You can have joy in the midst of suffering, which can make life good, even when it seems on the outside to be bad. And I know that there are some, even in our very church, who have uh, cancer, who have been suffering from that, who I see it, I see it in them. I see joy in the midst of what they've been going through. And it's awesome. It's awesome to see that. Um, John not only gives us promise of life for those who have the Son, but he also kind of sounds a warning, doesn't he? For those who do not have the Son, he says you do not have life. Something that we should all seriously consider. Every single person doesn't benefit the same way from the life and sacrificial death of Christ. It's clear from this verse, and others like it, that... Not only those 
Not only do those who reject Christ not receive eternal life, but they also must stand in judgment before God one day for their sins. For example, John tells us in his gospel that forever or whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. There's the same promise. Then he says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. May I humbly remind you this morning that if you're not a Christian, you do not have eternal life. Only the wrath of God awaits you if you continue to reject the free offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. God will hold you responsible and accountable for every sin that you've ever committed in this life. And it doesn't matter how much good you think you've done to balance the scales. The problem is, God doesn't grade on a curve. His standard is, and always has been, 100% perfection, 100% all of the time. And before you start looking around saying, I don't think these people are perfect, and I know they're not perfect all the time, because I know some of these people, it's true. <laughs> That's why all of us need Jesus, because He is perfect. He is perfect 100% all of the time. He never once sinned. He never once broke a commandment. Even though He was tempted just like we are in every way. Okay? In addition to that, as though that weren't enough, if you're a follower of Christ, not only has He taken your sin and paid for it on the cross, He's given you the credit for His perfect life that He lived while here on this earth. What an amazing transaction that is. Your sin for His righteousness. Your sin for His good deeds. And it costs you nothing. Jesus paid it all. His love for you is so great that He gave His life in the most horrible way that you can have eternal life. Don't reject Him any longer. Believe and be saved. In the final verse of this passage, He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why he wrote this epistle. Not just the verses that we've studied this morning, but what we've been studying for the past couple of months. If you've received God's testimony concerning his son and you've believed in his name, he wants you to know that you have eternal life. Apparently, God desires for us to have the assurance of our salvation. He doesn't want us to have doubts about how much he loves us. As we study this epistle, there have been a lot of convicting sermons about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And I know myself, I've, I've, uh, my own lack of faithfulness has been exposed uh, at various times. And it's caused me to, uh, realize a greater and greater need for the grace of Christ in my own life. But God doesn't want us to despair over our sinfulness. Rather, He desires that as we realize our own unworthiness, that Christ would be magnified in us. 
the more that we see the depth of our sinfulness, the greater our need for Christ will become. And the more we experience the grace of Christ, the greater our assurance will be. Then as we begin to experience more and more the assurance of our salvation, we are able to get our focus off of ourselves and onto what it is to be. What is it that we are to be in the business of doing in the remaining years that we have on this planet? We're a sent people. We have been given a mission. And that mission is to proclaim the gospel of Christ far and wide, beginning first with our own cities, and Marysville and Snohomish and Arlington and Lake Stevens and Everett and, or whatever city or town or neighborhood you find yourself in. That's what we are to be in the business of doing. In a moment, we're going to sing some more songs of praise and worship to, to Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, you're also invited to come and partake of communion. Um, it's at this time, too, that you can bring forth your tithes and offerings. God has given us this meal as a means of grace so that our faith would be strengthened and that we would receive greater assurance of our salvation. And we are reminded of this by the bread and the wine, which represents his body and his blood. And we're reminded of the great price that Christ paid on the cross for us so that we might have life for him, in him for eternity. So before you come up, take a moment. Confess your sins to him. Thank him. Praise him as the eternal son of God.